When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Joshua Mitchell, who is a professor of government at Georgetown University. He's also an author of many a book, including most recently, American Awakening, which takes the identity politic bull by the horns and really delves into what makes it operate and why it is not such a good idea. In this conversation, that's what we cover. We also try to get beyond the surface level critiques of identity politic into the philosophical roots, and perhaps you could say even the theological realm of meaning that is being played out by different sorts of scapegoating. This is a very, very erudite conversation, probably one of the most enriching conversations I've had in a while, which is saying much because I've been lucky to have so many great conversations. I will attempt to make a list of all of the books that are mentioned in this episode, so you can find those down there in the description. And without further ado, here is Professor Joshua Mitchell. You're outside of D.C., so you don't have to deal with uh, what's going on inside D.C., correct? No, I live about 100 miles away. I lived in Washington oh. for uh, probably, well, Alexander for 15 years, and then mm. I just had enough, and I found mm. land out here on the eastern shore. So it's quite lovely. Yeah, it's part of your uh, one of your biographies that you're a conservationist. So you you, yes. you identify with your land and your relationship to your land as a, kind of a part of who you think you are and, and how you interact with the world, it seems like. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's true. Yeah. Uh, even I'm, I'm nervous even about the term conservationist. I think, I think hmm. we need to think in terms of stewardship rather than environmentalism. Uh, stewardship is when we're already in nature and we have to make more, tough moral decisions about what we take from her. Mm. Uh, environmentalism is where we keep morally pristine and we cordon off nature for so that human beings can't use it. Kind of like a, like a museum, like a relationship to a museum where everything is kind of distinct from the uh, participants in a way? Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. So, oh. yeah, I think we're already in nature and we need to teach people. That's why property is so important. They learn that lesson. that They're already mm. in it. That um, just to riff on that, it, there's this uh, video that has been floating around from uh, I think it's the International Monetary Fund. It, it's this really kind of creepy video, and it shows uh, it's a montage, and one part of it is uh, this really smiley guy, and the words splash across the, the screen: "You will own nothing, and you will be happy." And <laughs> Have you seen that? Well, no, I haven't, but it's it's certainly the dream of, of a vast number of people. Uh, I think it ultimately points to transhumanism, where we we move beyond the world of possession and generation altogether. Yeah, uh, and and that, of course, uh, I mean, Plato actually talked about it in a funny way in the Republic, but that's that's another story. Uh, why do you think that it's important for us to be rooted in uh, property and the real uh, through that means? Uh, Tocqueville 
Tocqueville points this points to the reason why. So Tocqueville thought that, um, <clears throat> well, let's put it this way. The whole of democracy in America is written under what could be called the French Revolution problem, the shadow of the French Revolution problem. And he took that the French Revolution problem to be that human beings were moving from an embodied condition yeah. uh, to a disembodied condition. And so when you move from you know being a part of a particular class and having particular roles to believing in the universal rights of man, the only possible response you could have to those who still adhere to any sort of particulars commitment is the fury of destruction, as, as Hegel called it, the terror. Hmm. And so his, so he worried about the emergence of cosmopolitan man, and he saw in America in the 18, or 1830, thereabouts, um, he saw these people who, who were very much embedded in their communities. However, he worried that the inner logic of, of the democratic age would continue to... Um, disentangle us from our worlds and from one another and from the long chain of generations mm-hmm. so that at the at the end of the democratic age we would uh we would succumb to the kinder and gentler tyranny where we where we owned nothing mm-hmm. uh we downloaded netflix we had our facebook pages and the global managers took care of everything for us so, yeah. uh, which is to say we've arrived yeah yeah we have is there any going back uh, before we dive into your concepts of uh, the selfie man and the bureaucratic man, uh, is there any going back from this progress or slowing it down? Well, so so if it's a lie lived against life, there will be evidence. And hmm. what haunts me more and more, and I talk a bit about this in the book, is what Huxley played with in 1929 in Brave New World. So he saw that that um, that this new world order uh, where people gave up their freedoms would have a psychic cost. But he thought that what you could do then is you could drug these people. Yeah. And so I think there's ample evidence that living this disembodied life is deeply unsatisfying and deeply unhealthy uh, and produces depression and suicide. But then the counter to that is, fine, we'll give them drugs. And in America, we have probably the highest use of legalized drugs, let alone illegalized drugs. In the world. And Tocqueville mm-hmm. saw this. He said in America, in the democratic age, America would go mad. There would be madness at a, on a scale that, uh, that no, nobody's seen. Yeah. And, and not a creative, fun madness, but a uh, wallowing, <laughs> no. uh, destructive madness. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, what I've been wrestling with, uh, one, one thing that I've been wrestling with with Tocqueville is uh, he, he's definitely uh, from a prior age, and he's very explicit about him being an aristocrat, and this mm-hmm. new world order is very distinct from that. And there are certain things about um, this, that previous aristocratic order that we rebel against in our bones, such as class, such as elitism, even though we see it all around us, we're constantly fighting against us. Uh, we rebel against uh, very rigid orders of, you know, plebeian underclass and then this you know, aristocratic class and this royal class. And I don't see we can go back from that because uh, 
because it, it's staunch. It it really separates. It it seems to be the case that the aristocrats uh, you know, kind of suppress or oppress those who are under them. And mm-hmm. you in in your talks in Tocqueville says that there's this uh, there's this kind of freedom from certain uh, pressures when we know our place and there's no movement. Uh, we don't have to uh, necessarily wrestle with that. And one thing that comes about when that class structure is gone is that um, you you talk about middle class anxiety, but what I'm seeing right yes, now with yes. social justice and activism and identity politic is it is that freedom from class releases um, and 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 under the shadow of equality and working towards equality, there's these uh, these pressures of resentment and guilt. And we don't know where to place mm-hmm. those, and they flare up so big. So it seems like de- democracy or the, the pursuit of equality has unleashed all this guilt and resentment. And it takes the form of activism and, you know, this refined pseudo-activism that's being pushed through our bureaucracies under the name of equity and inclusion and diversity. Um, <clears throat> What are your thoughts on yeah, that equi- kind of spread? Well, I worry about the term equity. I'm, I'm all for you know, um, recognizing the equality of all persons. I think that's a wonderful thing. That doesn't mean that we have equality of wealth and all those other things, but I think equality of person is, mm-hmm. is an important achievement, <clears throat> and Tocqueville did as well. Equity is something else. Equity, uh, it, you know, I hear the word, and I hear revenge, frankly. I don't, mm. hear, uh, I don't, I don't hear equality. I, think I hear getting even. Yeah, equalization. Um, I've been calling it. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's very troubling. Um, so one of the things that, well, Tocqueville says that the, the <clears throat> what we have to do is we have to live through our mediating institutions, and only through those mediating institutions um, will we be able to <clears throat> justify the kind of equality that emerges in the democratic age. Now, here's the question: So what do we learn in those mediating institutions? Well. We learn how to rule and be ruled, and I, I don't mean that so much in the mm-hmm. strong sense. I mean it in the very subtle sense, which then allows us perhaps to take it uh, into the political realm. But you know, in a family, there's a hierarchy. In, in churches and synagogues, there's a hierarchy. In mm-hmm. every sort of group relation, there's hierarchy. As, and you have to learn that, and you, there's no real recipe for it, but you can't, can't learn it without immersion. And so you can imagine a world where we increasingly – lose sight of all those subtle places where we learn how to rule and be ruled. Uh, and then, you know, the slightest hint of, uh, of inequality leads to profound resentment. Mm-hmm. The guilt thing, uh, this, you know, as I said in the book, there's, there's really, there's a proximal cause and a deeper cause. So I do think that part of the reason identity politics has emerged is that the church's especially the mainline Protestant churches, uh, they gave up on the idea of of guilt and the brokenness of man. I mean, this was Reinhold Niebuhr's great project in, in the 20th century. And he admitted, even as early as 1941, in the, you know, in the middle of a world war, he, he said, I don't think we're going to be able to go back to the idea that human beings are irredeemably broken. In the middle of a world war, he thought even then people were going to accept this. So, which is pretty astounding when you think about it. But my argument is that the Pew Charitable Trust uh, polls, which have gotten a lot of attention, in which uh, there is a claim that um, so many young Americans now are nuns, they're not affiliated with religion. I think it's really missed the question because 
the, the problem of guilt is a real human problem. And the churches and synagogues have a way of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they give up on it, it, the problem doesn't go away. And so my argument is young kids today, they don't need to go to church to learn about innocence trans- and transgression. It's identity politics. They've got yeah. the intersectionality scorecard. Uh, they know who's stained and who's pure. They know he, who's supposed to shut up and who has the right to speak. Uh, it's, it's a really twisted um, migration that has occurred in, in America from the, the churches, which dealt with stain and transgression, at least in the early part of the 20th century, reasonably well. But then it all fell apart after World War II. Uh, I mean, yes, people went to churches, but it, but it seemed that the fire and brimstone, the idea of the brokenness of man, it was just too much to bear. And John yeah. Rawls, by the way, is emblematic of this. I mean, he was he's the he's the emblem of 20th century responses to suffering. So he was an Episcopalian for a time, toyed with training uh, for the ministry, and then went off to World War II and saw so much suffering and misery that he concluded that there. That there couldn't be a God, and you know what? There's two responses to suffering. It's either yeah. I mean, that's one of them is no, there can't be God, and the other is well, I'm placed here amidst this to respond to the suffering, both my own and other people, uh, and to be deepened by it. This was Augustine's position. So the after World War II, uh, Americans largely they had enough of of pain. They wanted happiness, and the, mm. the churches eventually collapsed. This is Reinhold Niebuhr's great great worry uh, but but it's not that people became unreligious if we mean by religion being concerned with purity and stain are you mm-hmm. kidding me as i say in the book we're in the midst of a great awakening without god and without forgiveness yeah. so we're in the most profound religious moment except it's deeply twisted because there's no mode of atonement and and so as a consequence what the left has figured out which marxists could never figure out was how to use the guilt that's you know in the soul of American man uh, mm-hmm. to to completely transform it. Because whereas with Christianity, say, um, Christ takes upon himself the sins of the world, and so through him you move from purity or to impurity toward toward purity. I mean, not completely. You never quite get there, but you get a foothold. You get uh, the down payment on it, so to speak. And so you know that the problem of guilt ultimately has to be resolved theologically. But, but now the left is, is, is brilliant because it uses the trappings of Christianity. And I don't think mm-hmm. wittingly, uh, but it says, well, okay, yeah, there's, there's a way for you to atone and repent. It is to renounce. It's to renounce America. It's to renounce the claim that she is in any way redeemable. She's systemically racist. You have to renounce your monuments. You mm-hmm. have to renounce your history. And and this is playing out in Europe in a slightly different way. It's not guilt about race so much. It's guilt about nations. And so the, the, hmm. the wager left in Europe is making to the whole of the European peoples is look at look at the horrible things you did as colonialists. Look at World mm-hmm. War One and World War Two, and look at the Holocaust. And the way that you can atone for that is to renounce your nation, which is to say, which allows us to understand why, if anyone even dares think about, you know, returning to the world of nations, they're called Nazis or fascists. Yeah. Because that's what yeah. nationalism is. So, so the great crisis is we don't have a way to deal with guilt. And, 
And as I say in the book, this goes one of two ways and only one of two ways. Either, I guess we could trudge along for a while further. I don't see that happening. Either we, we put these, we understand that the continual scapegoating, at least first of the white heterosexual men, then women, then black men, and on and on and on. That it actually doesn't work. Once we purge these groups, we still go to sleep at night and feel guilt. Uh, mm-hmm. e- either we realize that the problem can't be resolved by mortal scapegoating, or we go the Nietzschean option, which is the real yeah. outright, not Richard Spencer, but the real outright, where we get rid of the categories of, of stain, transgression, and above all, the category of the innocent victim. Nietzsche only wanted strength and weakness. That was the only two categories for him. So we'd have to, that, that would be the other way. And there are people who are considering that because, in a way, because the left makes it impossible once they've announced your guilt, there's, there's no redemption. And so one could imagine the Nietzschean thought coming to people's mind, which is, well, we're going to have it tomorrow, not since we don't have it through forgiveness, we're going to have it through forgetting. And we don't care what, we don't care what happened with slavery. We don't care about colonialism. The whole, we just don't care. And there are people on the, on the right, especially in Europe, who have come to exactly that conclusion. Mm-hmm. So what happens when we enter into that Nietzschean strength, weakness, and forgetting of guilt? Uh, it doesn't seem that the guilt will go away. Uh, well, the, so that's the interesting thing. So if you look at <laughs> the genealogy of morals, Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, the second essay, he talks about guilt. And Bill McClay's actually was the one who alerted me to this. Bill McClay's essay on guilt in the Hedgehog mm-hmm. Review should be required reading for everybody. Okay. I mean, I, perhaps I'm being a bit hyperbolic, but so <laughs> much okay. of what I said in the book, so much of what I said in the book uh, was was a gloss on Bill's brilliant essay. Okay. And what Bill pointed out in that essay, the persistence of guilt is a title. It might be available by PDF, but even if you have to buy it from Hedgehog Review, it's a couple of bucks and it's well worth it. Uh, but but what Nietzsche predicted, and here he's quite wrong, was that. Once Christianity disappeared as an organized religion, guilt would disappear. And that turns out to be quite wrong. That turns out to be quite wrong. Okay, so this is the question then. Is guilt acculturated into us? Is it just a part of the Western imagination, something very deep in our operating system? Or is it primordial? Is it even deeper than our culture? And we're all born with it. Like if you take uh, the Christian story of being born with guilt, is this something that we can never get away from? Or is it something that is a learned response to something else? Well, uh, you know, Freud was, I think, the first one to really lay out the claim that guilt was not um, internal to us. It was the internalization of of the norms of society against the desire for for erotic satisfaction. So so Freud says guilt is kind of an error, something external to us. But Mm -hmm. you're quite right, and you know the position I take on this, that, uh, that the story of Adam is the primordial story of of the human being. And we can argue about that or and that's fine, but I say, look around. I mean, what, what happens there in Genesis in book three uh, immediately is that um, there's, there's guilt that's, uh, that's, that's present, and the response is what's so telling. So Eve says, it wasn't me. It was the serpent's fault. And yeah. Adam says, it was, uh, it was you, God. It's your fault. The woman you gave me. Give <laughs> me eat the uh. apple. So this is, this is the universal problem. It's right there in Genesis chapter three. And so you can see uh, all of woke culture 
lurking in Genesis chapter 3, verses you know, 4 through 8. Uh, because what woke culture is all about is the attempt to, to, to start – well, one starts with guilt and one externalizes it and mm-hmm. finds some way that one can be innocent. And I, as I say in the preface to the, to the book, there is a Passover ritual that guilty white people go through every single day. You know, they have to, because they are the scapegoats, they are the prime transgressors, they must above all demonstrate that they're not like those other white people. I think that the hatred of Trump is in part mm-hmm. this. I've been to so many gatherings. I noticed this just as soon as he started running for president before, well, 2015. It was astounding. You'd go to a, a group of a gathering and People felt the need to distance themselves from him. I, I am not that kind of white man, whatever that is. I'm not mm-hmm. like those kind of people. And while so many people are talking about a race war between black and white in America, there is, in effect, a race war within, within the, the whites. I mean, I hate using those terms, but you yes. know, the deplorables are used as a way for whites, for guilty liberal whites to say, I'm not like them. And so to come back to the Passover ritual. Uh, you, what you have to do is you have to paint, paint the blood of innocence on the lintel of your door so that death passes you by. Well, the equivalent is you have to, you have to innocence signal. I don't call it virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. Virtue is Greek. Innocence is, is Hebrew and Christian. So it's innocence signaling. We have to get the language right here. So you have to innocence signal that, so that social death passes you by. <laughs> and that's what woke capitalism is. And that's what everybody is doing. I see this on the doors of my colleagues. You know, they put, yes. you know, I'm, I'm for the New Green Deal, uh, Martin Luther King posters, and, you know, I'm for Pronouns all, in their bios and BLM in oh, their yeah. bios. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's a way for, for guilty whites to cover themselves with innocence. And, and they do this, you know, in so many different ways. But above all, it's by... Uh, by by calling out the other whites that they're not like, and and Hillary Clinton just gave him the template. It's the deplorables yeah. and the irredeemables. It yeah. was just perfect because it's theological language. They have yeah. they have original sin. That's what she was saying. And in in this conception, because um, I, I was thinking about there's the deplor from the stance of uh, what I could loosely call the uh, upper middle class middle class uh, white liberal uh, who's participating in in innocence signaling. They distance themselves from the other white people by thinking of them as deplorable, but they also uh, formulate a relationship towards so called people of color as the pitables. What what is that part of this equation of this adulation, this soft bigotry? Um, this patronization, um, the, all these rituals within these uh, woke seminars, where such as Robin D'Angelo puts the uh, people of color onto a pedestal. W- what is that in, in this formulation, or what is going on there from your point of view? Well, it's it's signaling. Uh, I have not read her book, uh, but it's signaling that um, that that they uh, th- these are the innocent ones. And that we have to help the innocent ones. And I don't know if you know this. I don't think I put it. It's, it's, it's a bit in the book, but I, I don't think I put it in my bio. Bob Woodson and I are working very closely with group 1776 Unites. And among other participants is Jason Riley with the Wall Street Journal, who's really wonderful. He's a very smart guy. And uh, he, I think he wrote a book. It's called Stop Helping Us. <laughs> uh, you know, what, what is it that whites are getting here? Because whites are getting something out of this. 
And uh, I will tell you an anecdote to s- step away from the race question in America, but it's the identical problem. Mm. Uh, in 2008, I left Georgetown and was uh, became the, the acting chancellor of the American University of Iraq in Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we had Kurdish students and we had a lot of Arab students from the South, uh, mostly Kurdish students. And um, bear in mind, a lot of these kids you know, had seen the, the Iraqi invasion, but I think the bigger trauma, which people forget, was the Kurdish civil war and Saddam's part in that. And what Saddam did, among other things, was, was uh, he caused a Kurdish genocide. I mean, he, he gassed Halabja. And it was known as the Anfal. I mean, tens of thousands of people died. So we had, we had a, a, a scholarship category called the Anfal student category. So we had kids who were really, really traumatized. Okay, that's mm-hmm. the first thing. Second, we had a lot of American and Canadian teachers. I guess pretty much all white. I'd say forty or fifty of them altogether. And what was remarkable was that the university faculty and administration immediately split in two. You had people like me and a few others uh, who said, well, yeah, they've been through hell, but the way you help them is you help them become independent. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't coddle them. You say, here's the standards. We're going to help you get there. If you don't, you fail and you take a grade to go over. It's tough love. Mm-hmm. And then we had these guilty, guilty American teachers and Canadian teachers, all of whom would be in this group that you're describing right now with respect to race, all of whom would be. Uh, and and they, they had a very different view, which was, oh, these poor kids, we've caused them harm or they've been so harmed, they can't, they can't succeed. Uh, we can't expect them to hand in paper assignments on time. Mm-hmm. They can't do their homework. We have to give them passing grades. If they cheat, we let them go. And this is exactly the same thing. You've got the racism of low expectations. So the University of San, or San Diego school system right now has decided yeah. in its infinite wisdom, you know this story, yes, <laughs> yeah. to lower standards so that blacks don't have to, uh, they don't have to succeed or they can mm-hmm. succeed by not succeeding. And, uh, you know, Bob Woodson and I wrote this Wall Street Journal piece a week and a half ago uh, in which we cited Frederick Douglass, who, who back in the 1850s was saying the exact same thing. That the way white people will keep blacks in perpetual poverty uh, is is to not give them the hard lessons of of liberty. Oh, jeez, yeah. Okay. Make them make it clear that they, you know, let's get them drunk. Let's show them that it's easier to be drunk and a slave than a than a free person. So this is exact. Yeah. This is a rerun. This is whether it's Iraq or Frederick Douglass, eighteen fifty, or America today. This is a real sickness. And Jason Riley and Ian Rowe and a couple of others, Glenn Lowry, who are yeah. a bi-weekly call, it's just wonderful. The best thing that happens to me twice a month. Um, they, they say, well, you know, what would happen if black people said to these white people who are you know, catering to them, we're going to do this without you? That's your point. And the problem is the white people would lose the meaning of their existence. Mm. because this sick relationship of dependence is what gives them meaning. Yeah. And, and it, slavery it is a renews that pitiable of, class generation after generation so that their children yeah. have people to look down on um, in both right. directions. Right. Yeah. And if I may add to this, I mean, Bob's really good point is that, you know, there is a long history of, of black success uh, 
amidst tremendous adversity. Yeah. And what happened when the civil rights movement really, well, sorry, when the welfare, when the race grievance industry really got underway was you had to erase those stories because the whole of the race grievance industry is predicated on blacks having no history of accomplishment, which is why you need more and more state programs. So you have to erase the history. And Bob's point is, and Glenn's and all the others, is no, we have to go recover that history so that we can go into black high schools and say, you're better than this. Let me tell you about what happened in 1928 in Tulsa. You know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. If under the conditions of Jim Crow, blacks did this, this is post-civil rights, people. You mm-hmm. need to pick, pick yourself up and do this. So, so Bob is, you know, Bob and Glenn and the rest are fighting a, a war within the black community too. You know, that we again to come back to my earlier point, uh, it seems like it's black versus white on so many people's accounts. No, it's actually two very different versions of the world within these two communities too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. Just uh, the other day, Biden released a tweet, or whoever composes his uh, relationships uh, to the public composed a tweet, where he said, I'm, I'm slightly paraphrasing that, quote, the fact is that systemic racism uh, touches every part of uh, American life, and that when we solve this through equity, uh, everybody will be free or everybody succeeds. Uh, just using that as kind of the template, uh, I mean, there's a lot of weird language about facts being thrown around by him on this issue. But what do you see going on on the federal level? Um, and, you know, is this virtue signaling about equity, about defining equity as uh, fair opportunity for all individuals, including all these identities? How far do you think that this uh, will be implemented? And what do you see coming down the pipes uh, from the federal government under Biden? Well, uh, his the his insistence that now Title Nine, the, the the word sex in Title Nine now be extended to gender identity, which I think mm-hmm. is going to have to be litigated. I mean, this effectively does away with the protected category of women because any man can say, "Well, I think I'm I'm a woman today, and I'm going to, you know, go join the Olympic team or mm-hmm. play women's basketball because I'm a woman." Uh, so I, I'm very worried about this. Um, so my view, you know, from 50,000 feet is that identity politics actually uh, among Americans, it died in 2016. And I think, frankly, uh, people haven't really talked about this, but just before, well, somewhere in 2015, uh, the Obama administration was pushing for the, the transgender agenda. Mm-hmm. suggesting that bathrooms in America have to be changed. And I think Americans just said, no, I don't think we're going to do that. Uh, and I think that's part of the appeal to Trump is he was, you know, he wasn't particularly articulate, but his intuitions were mm-hmm. very much against identity politics. Uh, and he tried to push back. And, and of course the failing of that is you, you, you can't, you know, we're not going to make any headway through executive orders, whether they're the Biden ones or the Trump ones. There has to mm-hmm. we have to reach a political consensus, and then it can be codified into law. Okay. And the idea that somehow we can push ahead with law, and then it'll, and then people will come to their senses about it. Well, that hasn't worked since Roe versus Wade. I mean, this is mm-hmm. I think we can talk about that if you want. But so I I expect that um, the Biden administration is is going to double down on this identity politics thing, thinking that Trump was an anomaly. And my view was. Hmm. Trump was writing something he didn't he didn't fully understand even and that that thing is not going away that people are 
people are really just fed up. Uh, you know, I mentioned at the outset that I'm living out here on the Eastern Shore and I'm fixing up a very old house and I've got contractors here. Some are white, some are black. They get along fine. Yeah. They just want to know, are you a good plumber? Or a good le- That's all they care about. And, and they turn on the TV and they hear, you know, that the, the whites out here, they must be racist. These are the least racist people I've ever seen in my life out here because they're working together with one yeah. another. But, uh, but I, think, I think Americans just got fed up with that. But American elites, and this is back to the universities, um, mm. feel the need to distinguish themselves from the others, from the people who are less worthy, less morally advanced. Of course, this is not what necessarily what they practice because they oftentimes live bourgeois lives, as people have pointed out. Yeah. But they have to distinguish themselves in this way. And so they're going to push an agenda uh, which has no consequences for them because they have stable lives. But, you know, if you undo the category of, of man and woman, mm-hmm. uh, if, you, if, you un, if you constantly rip apart the church, the least among us need the family and the church. It's a bald fact. And I'm all for pluralism, make no mistake about it. I mean, here I'm probably a little farther left than a lot of my conservative colleagues. My view is, even on the gay marriage thing, it's, it is a fact on the ground that, that this, this is going to play itself out. My concern is, is not so much whether it's a fact on the ground. My concern is how we deal with pluralism. And my concern is that, that we, if, if, if we deal with pluralism under the rubric of inclusiveness, we're all doomed. Because the farther out you go, the more you have to actually be exclusive. So to be inclusive of the transgender agenda, we have to reject heteronormativity and we cannot be cisgender, to use the colloquial terms. And that's ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous because that makes people who believe that a man is a man and a woman is a woman guilty of a thought crime. It mm-hmm. makes people who want to raise their children guilty of a thought crime. It means people who believe that God actually did order the world such that it was sexed, so to speak. Uh, that makes them guilty of a thought crime. Uh, sorry, that is not inclusiveness. And so I think the, the, the difficult inclusiveness would be, hey, look, you know, for lots of complicated reasons, we're going to try all sorts of things in the democratic mm-hmm. age. But what you cannot do is try those things at the expense of ripping apart the institutions that are necessary uh, for, for the healthy functioning of the vast swath of humanity. And it used to be that the aristocrats, you know, in the olden days, as it were, uh, you know, they, they believed in the church and the family, and there was all sorts of craziness, you know, in the inner workings of, of aristocratic circles. But they understood that society as it were, has to bet on the pack, to use Michael Oakeshott's famous passage, right? There's, he, was a, he was a gambling man. And there's mm-hmm. some out front, some behind. But there's yeah. most of them are in the pack. And society has to bet on the pack. And, and any pluralism you have has to emerge out of that. And so if you want to have you know, the centrality of men and women in the church, and then, there's, and then we're tolerant of others who don't believe that, that I, I can live with that. That's what pluralism does. I can live with that. What I can't live with and what nobody is going to be able to live with is the idea that to be inclusive means we have to destroy the pack, so to speak. We have to destroy the idea of the family, destroy the idea of the nation, destroy the church. That's just not going to work. And I don't think the left understands that. And they they will therefore overplay this in very bad ways. I just – 
they're very smart people. So it, uh, what I can't reconcile is that they lean so hard into uh, deconstruction and uh, renunciation of normativity. Uh, the left, broadly speaking, uh, leads, leans so far into that. What are they going to replace the church with? What are they going to replace normativity with? It seems like there's this glorious utopia on the other side of this gap between uh, here and there. There's this progressive lens, so to speak, that uh, omits the middle. Uh, how do we, what, what are they going to replace uh, functioning society with? I guess what the new world order? Well, so let's come back to the very successful upper middle class that, uh, that sings the praises of all this stuff. And let's just look at it in terms of uh, gun violence, right? So they, they want to outlaw guns, but go ahead and ask them. What are the TV shows you watch? They're all they're fixated on hmm. crime shows. Fixated on crime shows. <laughs> it's it's really remarkable. Uh, and huh. and also you know what are your teenage daughters listening to? Well, they're listening to rap music that you know is just horrible with respect to women. But the point is, the upper middle class they live in dis- distant zip codes, as Bob says. In other words, hmm. their actual lives are very stayed very bourgeoisie and 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 so they can they can turn on the tv and listen to the music but it doesn't affect their souls it's what they do in their spare time they've got a rich network okay family connections community connections a rich network which is what everybody needs needless to say and so you can practice that kind of Look at me, I can endure this, I can advocate this, look at how woke I am. You can do it if you've got all the bourgeois trappings. But the problem is, when you try to impose that on a country as a whole, to the least among us who who desperately mm-hmm. need the trappings of family, who who cannot constantly be exposed to gun violence, lest they come to imitate it. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem here. If I may back up... Um, Thurston Veblen in, in uh, Veblen, I think it's 1899, wrote a book called *The Theory of the Leisure Class*. I mentioned this in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, Tocqueville says as we move toward equality, quote, a host of arbitrary and artificial classifications will emerge. Why? Because while human envy drives us toward equality, human pride leads us to distinguish ourselves. Yes. So, yeah. What happens in the age of equality? Well, first, Thurston Veblen's another great book you should get if you haven't read it theory of the leisure class and he he's an eastern european immigrant who has a keen eye for wasp culture i mean it's really quite hilarious (laughs) and he sees that these people are involved in conspicuous consumption this is how they distinguish themselves and uh but you know once you get to the so-called post-material world which a lot of people on the left have been proclaiming since the 80s you got to have some new way to distinguish yourself because you always have to distinguish yourself. You can't be equal. I mean, for all the talk about equality, we don't want equality. We have to distinguish ourselves. And mm-hmm. so the new way to distinguish yourself is to be woke. And of course, some people can do it. The people who, you know, have, can afford have as to. I said, can afford to, both literally physically, but also in terms of the vast reservoir of social capital that has constituted them effectively as bourgeois souls mm-hmm. who need to distinguish themselves from the other bourgeoisie. So there's always the desire to distinguish yourself, and that's part of what's going on here among the elites. And, and you know, the, the price of admission now is a woke education. Oh, you know, God. there's tremendous... Which is compulsory now. 
across everywhere. Yeah, it's, but there, so the university, we have to be clear, the university is not about education. The university is about conveying wokeness and social justice. And they're going to give you an A. Because the, the issue here is not let's distinguish the competent from the incompetent. The issue is you're here now. As long as you, you know, sing the praises of wokeness, uh, we're going to give you an A. Mm-hmm. That's why they stay away from, and you know, counselors will say, well, you, you really want to take a class from that professor? He's a, he's a conservative, you know. And that's a code for he might not like your wokeness and might not give you an A. I mean, this happens. I've, I've heard this said about me. Oh, that the counselors say to students, you really want to take classes from that Mitchell guy? You know, he's a conservative. <laughs> oh, well, I better not take a class from that Mitchell guy. I mean, it's really remarkable, but it's hap- it happens all the time. It's been happening for the last 10 years to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How long can the universities go on like that before they exhaust all of their uh, social capital? Uh, uh, I think the the end is near, and, and that uh, that might mean 20 or 50 years. I didn't. Okay. I wouldn't have said this even five years ago, but the cost is getting so prohibitive. Uh, it's not clear that there's anything really being accomplished except producing a generation of students who will join the woke establishment. Uh, and it's the cost thing. I think that, that I think is is ultimately going to make this impossible. I mean, I tell my students this will date me. So, start college in 1974. I go to the University of Michigan, a very good school. Uh, I have a job as a carpenter for $10 an hour, and my tuition is $382 a semester. Yeah. I pay for my tuition in a week of work. Two weeks, and I pay for the whole year. And in the name of equality, what happened was uh, people said, well, I can't afford that. And so the government said, well, we're going to make possible universal college tuition. So they give out grants, and every university professor, every university president in the country says "cha-ching," mm-hmm. because now you know basic laws, laws of supply and demand. Effective demand has gone up. There's demand to go to college, but effective demand is you can pay for it. So if effective demand goes up, then you jack up the price of your of your uh, product. And so now Georgetown, and I'm not picking on Georgetown. All of them are all the private universities are crazy expensive. But it's probably sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. Mm. Well. Uh, you know, that can't go on much longer. And the reason, I mean, what has grown in the university, it's not been the faculty, it's the administration. And what, yeah. yes, the faculty are pushing the wokeness to be sure, but what you really have to look to is the administration. You've got, you know, all sorts of senior vice presidents of this and that. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the student affairs offices, frankly, that are doing most of this. They're doing the real educating, which is to mm-hmm. say they're doing the education unto wokeness. Yeah, and uh, they have and their they have their Stasi with their um, bias incident response teams. It's insane what they're replicating at the level of student affairs, yeah, policing behavior yeah. and 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 foisting these uh, you know uh, these uh, seminars and workshops and then these codes uh, on the student students. Come and call for a second. The word that uh, that is thrown around uh, everywhere at university administrations is comfortable. Are we comfortable with this? Everybody has to be comfortable. Uh, the Georgetown Free Speech Committee, fortunately. I will say, you know, Georgetown, it's very interesting. Georgetown is a peculiar beast because Georgetown is a Catholic university and it's, you know, sort of left and it doesn't want to be under the thumb of the Pope, or at least the last Pope, last two Popes. Um, and so it actually has a really strong free speech code. 
It's very interesting. So I'm on that committee. Uh, but, uh, but still there's, you, you can sense that there's a, there's a need for everybody to be comfortable on the committee and in the whole university. And why don't you go back and read your Plato? I mean, the philosophical practice of death is how you get to truth. And that's really uncomfortable. Uh, so, so if we're, if we're going to pursue truth, we're not going to be comfortable, but mm-hmm. everywhere you go, uh, in student affairs, uh, in the dorms, they're doing everything to make students comfortable. So they're teaching them in their actual lives the wrong lesson. My view is students should be in barracks, sleeping on steel ba- benches, <laughs> going, going out and, and picking the, you know, the wheat from the fields for the, for the meal. And then we would have, I'm being a bit strong, but, but we've produced a coddled generation. Of course, their parents started this. Yeah. And I will say, I saw this already with my generation of parents and fought back against it vehemently to no avail. Uh, just a quick story. So I was, when I was growing up, I had, I had in Ann Arbor, we had a baseball coach who was uh, Bob Eufer, who was a former NCAA track star. He would scream at us and yell at us and say, you're doing this wrong. And he'd shame us. And, you know, we didn't care because we knew he was going to teach us how to play baseball, and we won. We were we were a great team. So I thought mm-hmm. when I had my two sons, I'd repay the repay the favor. Uh-oh. And yeah, this was nineteen early nineteen nineties, and I was stunned by the transformation. It was largely the mothers too. I, I will blame the mothers. Uh, I think the fathers were just numb by what had happened. But uh, <laughs> the mothers would say things like, "Well, let's not tell them the score." Don't be mean to them. And after every play from the stands, no matter how horrible their kid had performed on the field, they'd all clap their hands and say, good job, good job. And I remember yelling at them at one point saying, no, it's a terrible job. They kicked me off as coach. They didn't want me. Yeah. So, and it happened a long time ago. It continues to happen. Uh, it's going to take – so you know, I don't want to be too cryptic here, but Augustine famously says – Scipio did not destroy Carthage for fear that if he had destroyed his enemy, the Romans would become lax and weak. Well, after 1989, after the long struggle is over and we're the world, you know, the hegemonic power, you go soft. Yeah. And yeah. you don't even think about competition. You think about their feelings. Are you kidding me? Do you remember the Tom Hanks movie about baseball? I can't remember the, the team of their own. I think it was what it was called. Was that it? it Gina yeah. Davis and Madonna, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there's one famous scene where Tom Hanks is saying there's no crying in baseball. And you know what? The truth is there is no crying in baseball. But (laughs) Hanks capitulates in the movie. I mean, this is part of the grand culture narrative moving things left. It teaches you that there can be crying in baseball. There can be crying in everything. Well, if there's crying in everything, then we're no longer living in a competitive world. And the only condition under which that's even remotely possible is if on the global scene, you don't have competition. So I'm kind of welcoming China. The ascent of China. This is going to kick us in the butt, and we're going to have okay. to return to what I call in the book the liberal politics of competence. Yes, competence. Could could we back up just a little bit? Um, and uh, I, I I want a definition of uh, conservative, and I, I think you are a conservative professedly, um, or at least allegedly, um, or uh, people have accused you of that. What is that? What is the, the founding principles of that? And how does that um, balance out the liberal uh, tendency? So, so I am, I don't know if you have interviewed Yoram Hazoni. You should. He's, uh, 
basically the head of the national conservatism, conservatism movement. And I'm a part of it. And Yoram and I go way back. And I applaud what they're doing, which is returning to a world of nations. Um, my, my concern is this. And here's what makes me more liberal. And I don't mean left, because one of the things I'm really trying to do in the book is to say we, there aren't two alternatives. There are three. Uh, and I, I am somewhere between liberal and conservative in the threefold sense, not the twofold sense. So, so there is a huge debate about what conservative is. And, but as a general rule, the way I put it, this, 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 I'll, put, I'll do left and conservative, then I'll do liberal. Okay? So okay. the left is about removing the past, erasing it, because the past can't, can't be a guide. And Burke is the first one to respond to this. Of course, he's responding to the French Revolutionary attempt to destroy everything and to start over, including the calendar. And, yeah. and that's why Burke's Reflections on the Revolution of France is, so to speak, the Bible of the conservative movement, and rightly so, because he understands, and I think he's right, that inheritance really does matter, that we can't build a world except from what we have. We, we can't burn it all down and then say, hey, what should we build? That's just not how life works. That's a brilliant insight, and it tempers the revolutionary fever. And in that sense, I, I very much am a conservative. I'm a little worried, though, that uh, that that the that that conservative movement, and I'm, here I'm not picking out any particular people. I'm just talking about the logic of this. Yeah. You know, the left has made a claim that the that America is systemically racist. Mm-hmm. Now, the knee-jerk reaction would be to say, "No, it's not. It's pure. America's founding is pure." Mm-hmm. And there are conservatives who make that argument. And I don't think it's necessary. And I am not only that, I think it's not true. I think because I am a Christian and the whole of history is stained, I'm fully prepared to say that since Adam forward, it's not been a great deal. We, we have this precious gift called our inheritance, but mm-hmm. that too is, it's not always completely pure. And I think part of the problem of conservative ink is that when you have this you know, pure Burkean sentiment that's really in some ways a response to the left claim that everything is irredeemable and broken, you're not able to take a good hard look at America and say, you know, we got this slavery thing. That's not pretty. That's just not pretty. And we need to take a good hard look at it. So, so I'm somewhere between, I'm prepared to say on Christian grounds that the world is broken, not on leftist grounds that it's systemically racist and we have to erase it. But I'm prepared to say, yeah, uh, ever since Adam, it's been, you know, kind of a bad deal. But nevertheless, um, we have this wonderful thing called America, and it's, it's struggling, and it, it, we have this vision of, of a land where we have the rule of law and intact borders, and we're trying to build something here. Uh, mm. We get our hands dirty. Uh, we want to be stewards of the earth. We want to treat each other decently. We want to have modest property holdings. We want to raise our kids. You know, that, that was actually old, that was liberal stuff, and it's, it's also conservative. But, but the reason why I don't, I'm worried about the conservatives is that they really are so knee-jerk in their reaction to the claim about systemic racism that I think they go too far in the claim about the goodness of our traditions. So I'm prepared to say, oh, family, absolutely, but there are problems with families. Church, absolutely. Have you been in the churches lately? They're a mess. Yeah. I'm prepared to say that, that we, we hold on to them notwithstanding the fact that they're broken. And I think this is one of the big questions of our time. 
what do we do with something that's not pure? Hmm. And strangely enough, there are even those on the right who have the same answer on the left, which is we get rid of it. But their response is, well, we don't have to get rid of it because it's pure. I think both answers are incorrect. I think we have to say, we have to get to the point, we have to return to the point. It's always been understood. This is most of human history understands this. Uh, that, that life is broken, but that's not an argument against it. That we continue to believe in our civic institutions. Uh, yeah, Jefferson held slaves, but have you read the Declaration of Independence? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, Washington, I mean, he, he was to be the king of the country. And he gave it away. He said, no, 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 that's not what we fought the revolution for. That is greatness. But yeah, he had slaves. You, we have to decide how we respond to the imperfections of the world. And my response is, yeah, that's exactly right. But you know what? That doesn't dissuade me from continuing to believe in my country and to fight for it. And I think the Christian position on this is we live in a broken world, and yet we live in hope. And so there's a, there's a moral challenge with every minute, but there's also a, a moral recognition that the world is not pure. So there's some, I don't know that I even have names, there's some, some block in conservatism, some space in the conservative space that allows for the claim or that insists on a, on a purity claim that I'm not prepared to abide with. And then secondly, um, I have a kind of provid- an Augustinian vision, which is to say that we're involved in a providential unfolding here. And so there may well be something new that, that comes along that we have to wrestle with. Uh, and you know, I'm not prepared to say that, that that goes all the way to the, the places that the left wants to go, but, but I'm prepared to be a bit more of a pluralist, I think, than many conservatives are. However, I will absolutely hold the line with conservatives that inheritance matters, that family matters, that our religious institutions matter, uh, that, that, that politics, which is concerned with the good, is an important domain, that economics is separable from politics, going right back to Aristotle. I mean, all the things that we learn from the history of political thought, the great things we learn, I'll fight and die for. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that uh, Trump uh, brought up uh, this thing. You said there's this thing that's not going away that Trump uh, tapped into. It spilled over, uh, perhaps, I I need to phrase this as a question, but uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, there was that Capitol incident. Uh, Some people call it a coup. Some people call it an insurrection or a riot. And the wording that's used is always dependent on uh, kind of your political leaning. Um, Of course. But the, my concern when that happened was the the way that I knew it would be told and used to quash dissent, to uh, basically relegate that whole thing behind Trump, uh, Trump being an undisciplined and uh, rather uh, inarticulate representative of this uh, this thing that he was writing. Um, so very difficult. Or it's very easy for that that event on the sixth of January to be used to ignore that thing or to squash it and to suppress it even further um, from from the view of uh, corporate media and uh, the left, uh, broadly speaking. Uh, mm-hmm. What I'm bringing up a lot of things, so I'm just going to let you riff well, on that. Sure. So, uh, so. Biden called for unity, and I'm starting an essay called 2021, The Year of the Scapegoat, because identity politics is really about scapegoating. And I I may have mentioned this before, you know, the words that are used are scapegoating words, hater, denier, 
Islamophobe, homophobe, fascist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's scapegoating worlds, and this, we have to understand what scapegoating is. This is so why I, I'm so resistant to some of my conservative colleagues saying, well, this is just a continuation of cultural Marxism. Now, this is very, very different. Okay. Uh, yes, the Marxists, um, you know, they, I suppose they scapegoated bourgeois man. That's true. But no, no, this is, this is pagan scapegoating. And Rousseau, as I say in the book, got this quite right. He said, you know, pagan wars prior to Christianity were, were really horrible wars because they were wars of purgation and scapegoating. Because there was, there was a sense that the purity of the community could only be maintained by scapegoating another group. Mm-hmm. And as I say, Christianity is absolutely revolutionary. Uh, Rene Girard worked this out in the 70s and the 80s in the book Violence and the Sacred and a few others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think people have paid enough attention to it. I mean, Christianity is so revolutionary because it says the problem of impurity is original. That's what is meant by original sin. And, and what that means is there's no external purgation. You, you, can, you can kill goats. You can kill all sorts of other people. You can go on for centuries and try and purge other groups, and the problem is still there. I mean, it's a brilliant insight. And, and their solution to it is the divine scapegoat. So you've got a problem that's deep, that is original, and it only has a divine solution. By the way, Athanasius, in the book The Divine Incarnation, worked this out 50 years before Augustine. It's a small book, beautiful mm-hmm. book, central tenet, central piece of Christianity, my view. So the Christian insight is, you know what? You can't, you can't purge the group because that's not going to help you solve your problem. There's no mortal scapegoat that will solve your problem. There has to be a divine scapegoat. And that's the claim about God becoming man. And Athanasius, as I said, works this out beautifully. So what does this do then? I mean, what this means is that you you can't find the answer to your problem of stain and guilt by looking to another person. There's a divine resolution to this problem. And my argument is what happens post-Christian is not secular. What happens when you lose this Christian insight is you return to the original insight, Mm. which is the scapegoating insight. We don't go secular, we return to paganism. By the way, Augustine saw this very clearly. The alternative is not secularism or religion. The alternative is revealed religion or paganism. Those are the Mm. two real alternatives. So when I see, say, body piercings, which Augustine fought against, uh, you you don't pierce the body, you don't cause it pain, it's a temple. Mm -hmm. And the pagans pierce themselves all over the place. So you know, we say we've moved out of Christianity, we've moved to a secular world. No, we haven't. We're returning to a pagan world. And the scapegoating impulse is returning as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, so now we come to the left today. That's what it's doing, is it's scapegoating an entire group of people in the hope that if you can just get rid of them, if you can just silence them, if you can just ignore the First Amendment, if corporations <laughs> won't cover them, media corporations won't cover them, then we can just do what Hillary really wanted to do, which is to expunge them from the community. Because if we do that, then everything's going to be fine. This is this pagan insight about scapegoating. It's mm-hmm. deeply unchristian. Of course, the irony is the, the category, the innocent victim, transgression and stain, all these things come out of Christianity. And that's the real sickness here, is the left is using the implements of Christianity without the Christian resources to fight back because the Christian answer back is, you know what, you, you can't 
scapegoating me isn't going to solve your problem. How's that working for you? After you cancel somebody on Facebook, you still go to bed and you feel like crap. Why is that? Mm-hmm. And the answer is because there isn't, the solution that you're seeking won't give you an answer to the problem. I mean, this is playing out in Eastern Europe and Western Europe, both Eastern Europe and Western Europe in very interesting ways. Mm-hmm. So Western Europeans have this Christian guilt and they have no idea what to do with it. Uh, they can't go back to the churches. They, they laugh when I go to Europe and say, well, you have to revitalize your church. Ah, oh, that's never going to happen. Well, so they have to then deal with a way, find a way to address the problem of guilt. Mm-hmm. And the way they're doing it is by renouncing their nations. That's what the left's deal is with them. Renounce your nation and you will be guilt-free. Hence, join the EU. But in Eastern Europe, where the Catholic Church is still strong, they just say, look, you, you try that game with me if you want, but I know where guilt goes away. Mm. It's in the church. And so I'm going to defend my nation. Thank you very much. It's really remarkable. And my view is, ultimately, there's no political solution. It's not, it's not Trump or Trump too. Yeah. It's not that. It's a deeper under... We have to get... We have to go to the deepest understanding of what is happening here. Namely, it's a scapegoating ritual. Uh, we have to understand there was, a, there was and is a Christian resolution to it. And I frankly think that unless you awaken to that, that, that Christian understanding, um, this can only end with identity politics initially being victorious, but ultimately a kind of Nietzscheanism, which we talked about a minute ago, mm. reemerging, where people say, I can't live with this unbearable burden of guilt. I'm going to forget. I don't care about guilt anymore. And we'll, we will move from the categories, as which Nietzsche wanted to do, of, of innocence and transgression to the categories of strength and weakness. That's what Nietzsche thought. Do away is that, with the moral categories. Is that a categories. form of pagan, paganism or a, a aristocratic? Because uh, I think Nietzsche was uh, kind of uh, yeah. He was more uh, aiming towards it. It is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, so Nietzsche. I, mean, I think Nietzsche has great admiration for the pagans, but but, the, yeah. but what makes it so very complicated with Nietzsche is that he also understands that this Christian Hebrew thing. Uh, by virtue of it uh, turning the will back in on itself with, with yeah. the, the commandment, thou shalt not, it deepened man and gave him a kind of interiority. And mm-hmm. so pagans were strong but, but dumb, but dumb and, and, and stupid shallow. and didn't see yeah. what was coming. Yeah, shallow. Uh, so it's not clear really where Nietzsche wants to go. So the left takes the, you know, the deepening part and say, no, no, we're, we're not talking about race wars or anything like this. No, we're just going to become ubermensch in the comfort of our own living rooms and develop a kind of interiority of soul. That's the left Nietzscheanism. And then the right says, no, it's blood and soil. And that's what's happening in Europe, hmm. in parts of Europe, the blood and soil nationalism. So does, if I may, the, the, yeah. the, so I'm all for return to nations, but I don't want, I'm not, believe me, blood and soil nationalism, that was tried. We don't want to do blood and soil nationalism. We want to do what paid Tocqueville called well-considered patriotism. And that happens when people have a, a, a responsible love of their uh, state because they have a stake in it. And that's why federalism is important, and that's why you know, legitimate governments and legitimate elections are very important. This, is, this produces well-considered patriotism, and that's what we have to fight for. And how do we return to that from uh, such an intractable uh, stance from the left, uh, the dominant left? Uh, they, they're dominant in uh, culturally and now governmentally uh, in the government, and uh, they are pushing this, uh, 
you know, they're pushing systemic racism. They're pushing this, these articles of faith and equity and an identity. Um, and they're also actively, uh, you know, going too far with suppressing uh, the right or whoever's representing the right. Uh, and then there's this boiling, seething mass of people who are you know, rejected by that system. And mm-hmm. what are what what are they going to do? But uh, how do we avoid civil war? Is it coming? How do we avoid it? And is patriotism enough of a guide for us forward from this moment? These are great questions. Uh, so I gave part of the answer a little bit ago. You know, I do think we have to identify this identity politics movement as a deeply distorted form of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And and, and that's, that's both the bad news and the good news, because I frankly would prefer to work within the Christian categories of transgression and innocence than the Nietzschean categories of strength and weakness. So that's at least, that's at least a hopeful sign. I know it sounds very twisted, but, but it means that they under, the left – and I give them credit for this – they understand that transgression and innocence are important categories. And here I think conservatives – you know, they talk about family values mm-hmm. and, and the relight, right of religious freedom – but, but in a way, it rings hollow. I mean, it's a, it's a great mechanism for raising funds to support conservatism, Inc. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, it doesn't get to the meat of what's, what the left has identified. And I think, you know, in fairness to the left, the reason why they have such power is that they're not talking, they're, they're not talking about these abstract things that I think conservatives should now turn away from. I think we need to talk about transgression and innocence. We need to talk about inheritance and how it's a wonderful thing and yet partially broken. We need to mm-hmm. remind the left that scapegoatism is a form of Christianity. And, and if you continue to do this to people and, not, and, and, and claim that they're irredeemably stained but give them no way out, you will expect the Nietzschean uh, white nationalism that you claim is already at the heart of it. You will, you will literally produce it because that mm-hmm. is exactly what's happening in the left, by the left in Europe today, is that they're giving you know good, decent people no way out mm-hmm. except to join the alt right. So it's it's very troubling. However, I'm not I'm not completely pessimistic because, as I and I hinted about this earlier, I think Black America, they're the victims of this. They're the first victims of this because, as I said, as you move farther left and you defend. Uh, an agenda which attacks heteronormativity and attacks the church, black Americans just, they don't believe that stuff. So I've said in print on several different occasions, the only people who can, the only group in America that can stop this dead tomorrow is black Americans who can say to all these others who have fed parasitically on their wound. Yeah. And here I mean, women, uh, the gay community and, and transgender, you know, they, they, the argument is as civil rights goes, so goes women's rights, gay rights and transgender rights. Most black people will say, are you kidding me? That's just laughable. If you want to talk about those things, you go ahead and do it. But it's not on our backs. And I think, I think at some point, enough black Americans are, are going to be, get public. I think a lot of them have already woken up. They just don't know what to say about it. Yeah. And they're going to say no. And when that happens, it ends the next day. When black America says you can't trade on our wound, it's over. And then we can have responsible conversations about women in the modern age and gayness in the modern age. We can have those responsible conversations or even sexual dysphoria, but you can't hang it on black America, which needs those institutions and everybody needs those institutions. So that's, that's one point of, um, 
encouragement. The other, strangely, it's feminists. So feminists <laughs> and, and, frankly, gay conservatives because mm-hmm. you know, all they wanted to do was say, yeah, we agree with you that, that uh, male and female are, are extant categories. We just choose to be with our own in the case of the gays, or, or mm-hmm. we just want to empower women, and we recognize that you know, women is a distinct category. And there was a huge feminist literature on the ethics of care, and this is distinctly woman, Carol Pateman mm-hmm. and all the others in the 80s. And so they were trying to carve out something that was distinctly female. Yes. You know, as opposed to male, uh, you know, trying to order from above, calculation, rationality. I mean, there's, a, there's 20 years of feminist literature on this. Well, that's all just been erased by Biden. Uh, and by the move to the transgender movement, because now there's nothing about women that's particular. In fact, the idea that women can be a distinct category is just anathema. Yeah. So where women in the 80s wanted to spell it W-O-M-Y-N. Uh, now we get women trans- in. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Feminists are saying, wait a minute, I thought we were the victims here. And this is the this is the humorous irony, by the way, of identity politics is that the first groups of innocent victims, as you keep moving out, they become the transgressors because they at least accepted some of the categories of their you know their their oppressors, if you will. So th- that's the funny thing, and that you know sooner or later. So that's why I'm waiting for the old left. This is why I do everything I can to reach out, you know, to people my age, the old left who. Mm-hmm. Sure, they believe that you know women, if they wanted to enter the workplace, fine. Uh, but, but but they're not going to go this far. And so you know, I, I've got them in mind. I'm not going to name them. They're out there, and I know they're saying there's something wrong with this. But they won't say it because they're scared of being canceled. And so okay. I think what what has to happen is we have to reach out uh, to those people who are getting canceled, saying, "Is this is this really what you had in mind? Maybe you two need to stand against this identity politics." Uh, a coalition of the sane uh, that's probably yeah. hyperbole but yeah exactly yeah so you you don't think that um you think that a civil war i mean won't happen because uh people will wake up to wokeness uh people uh, there's a lot of work to be done but you you think that breaks will eventually be applied to where the left is taking us uh, no, <laughs> I no. can see where the brakes might be applied and, okay. and where people who are concerned with averting a civil war should apply the brakes. Uh, but, uh, but I'm worried that it's going to keep going farther. I, to come back to what I said only cryptically, uh, quite some time ago, I think what will have, will pull this, pull us out of this will be the need to return to a world of competence because we're in global competition with China. Okay. We don't we don't quite get it yet, but you know we we can't. Yes. Great. Biden ha- hired a, a transgender woman to be assistant secretary. You know, I, I frankly don't really care about that part of it. But if she's really competent, yeah, I, I will take that. That's good enough for me. But you know, the talk about oh, great, we've got a woman vice president. I really don't much care if she's a great woman vice president. If she's really competent, fantastic. I'll vote for her. But if yeah. she's not competent, I'm not voting for someone because of their identity category. And I think you can only indulge in that luxury mm-hmm. when there's no serious work to be done, which is why the universities can do this too, because they're actually irrelevant to building a world now. <sighs> uh, and it's only when we have to actually build stuff 
you know, build yeah. military, strengthen, really strengthen our economy so we can afford the military as opposed to going into infinite debt, bring the manufacturing sector home. Uh, you know, when we start building stuff, we're going to realize, hey, hey, this is stupid. I mean, if you're actually building a world together, it really doesn't. I mean, sure, uh, you know, you might say I'm I'm this and and you're that, and and we might be suspicious of one another. And the history of America is that suspicion, but the history of America is also overcoming those suspicions because we had to work together. But if we have nothing to work together on, if we've reached the end of history, and this is the utopian yeah. point. Then we can just sit and and call each other names and call each other yeah. transgressors and figure out our intersectionality score and think we've reached the end of history, which is what the left thinks we can do now. Okay. But if we get if if our nation is finally threatened, it's not going to matter whether you're black, gay, transgender. If you're on the battlefield, you have to pull a gun, pull a, a trigger, and and kill people. That's what you're going to have to do, and mm -hmm. and that's your identity is going to strip away. Very quickly, it's not going to be relevant. Yeah. You know, yeah. Bob Woodson. Just very quickly, I know we have to go. Bob Woodson famously said, you know, when he when he in, is in meetings and all these people are saying, "What about those racists?" And Bob says, "Okay, I'm giving you a choice. You got the best surgeon and the brain surgeon in the world who's a racist, or you've got your favorite identity category who's got malpractice against him, and he, and there's brain surgery on you. Who are you going to choose? I'm choosing the racist. Yeah." The thing is, it, we we have to stop making the identity category a precondition for engagement. But that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's a it's it's decadent. Um, it, it's a something yes, that we can afford absolutely, to do. Absolutely, yeah, it's an indulgence uh, that no nation living in the world of history, which is to say, living in the world of competition and war, can mm -hmm. long indulge in. But we've been able to because we are a world hegemonic power. Yeah. On the surface, uh, yeah. One exactly. one more Erotic question. Inside. Yeah, go ahead. One more question. Um, there's a a uh, several passages in your in your book, American Awakening, where you make an argument towards competence. And I, I want to. I might have been confused on this point, but you use the example of uh, self driving cars uh, is, is kind of detaching ourselves from the competence of being able to uh, in, engage with traffic. Uh, you know, knowing how to turn the car. Um, the the problem that I had with the argument that you laid down and uh, maybe I mistook it is that you could make that argument of losing competence with every single iteration of technology. I'm sure that you could go back in to 1910 and hear somebody uh, who is competent at horse riding bemoaning the fact that a car is going to detach you from the the horse and and nature and and learning to have a relationship with your vehicle in that direction. Um, mm -hmm. With regards to competence in an increasingly uh, convenient world, doesn't that competence just uh, kind of move category where in the self-driving car you have to be more competent with whatever you're, else you're working on? Um, do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and oh, no, I do. It's a, and it's a great yeah. question. Um, and just you know, to, to give the intellectual background on this, a guy named Michael Polanyi, not to be confused with Carl Polanyi, who was the great economist, but Michael Polanyi was a Nobel laureate chemist who, is, who wrote a book, wrote a number of books, one called Personal Knowledge. Uh, and it's an insight that was much needed in the 20th century. I think it's lurking in Rousseau already, namely that, hmm. that the really important knowledge in the book Emile, 
uh, especially books two and three of that volume called Emile, Educational Treatise. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the fantastic insight that Polanyi and Rousseau have is that, is that we, to use Polanyi's language, we know more than we can say. So that there's this vast reservoir of internal competence that mm-hmm. we, we develop um, that can't be reduced to algorithms, can't be digitized, etc., um, and, and, and the problem is uh, we have to have that kind of knowledge to be able to use, and here I'll introduce a, a word that I use a lot in the book, the, the supplements to it. So Rousseau's example is this. Ancient warriors, he says this, ancient warriors have courage, modern warriors have strength. And this is actually a, a blinding indictment of, of modern military and my military guys get this right away and what he meant was this so the ancient warrior has courage and how you get that not clear but you have to develop it if you're going to be a warrior and then to to supplement to supplement the courage you have you can put on weapons their externalities uh but and as supplements to your courage you gain as a warrior but when when you lose yes but when you lose the courage and focus only on the weapons, then then eventually, you're, while you have these externalities, these prostheses that give you great strength, you won't know how to use them well, because you have to have the requisite courage. The analogy in contemporary life is Facebook friends. Facebook mm-hmm. and social media can be wonderful things as supplements to our, our in, in, intimate and, um, and inarticulable knowledge of what friendship is. And that can only be practiced. You have to gain that through practice. So we can amplify our friendships through social media friendships. We can, we can amplify our shopping by going online shopping if we know the, the art of shopping. And it's a connoisseurship. You can't just send somebody who doesn't know how to shop to the grocery store because they're going to get you and, the and, wrong thing. And by that, yeah, and by that, uh, uh, you mean uh, being able to gauge the quality of what you're buying or the usefulness of yeah. what you're buying. Exactly. You have to have good taste. And that's connoisseurship, as Polanyi said. And it takes time. Like good cooks, you know, sure, they can give you the recipe, but it's something more than the recipe. The recipe is the Mm -hmm. resume of the invisible, indwelt knowledge that they have, which can't really be taught. So my argument in the the last third of the book is about the relationship between supplements and substitutes. And -hmm. it's not that I'm opposed to driverless cars. What I'm opposed to is them being substitutes for the competence of driving cars. And you're absolutely right to push this all the way back. And this is why I think childhood education must, it, it, we probably have, probably have to rethink this so that we give kids the, uh, the ability to develop competence with their hands, craftsmanship, carpentry, even if they're going to go on to do computer stuff. Because we have to build from towards, That's, this is Polanyi's great insight, and we can't skip the initial step. So driverless cars themselves aren't a problem, but driverless cars as a substitute is a huge problem. And we know this through Facebook, the analogy, mm. because when you just live with Facebook friends, you realize suddenly you don't know what friendship is. And so you have to go back hmm. and do the hard work of establishing what courage is, what friendship yeah. is, what political activity is, and that we have to learn through our bodies in real time. And this, is, this separates, by the way, the analog and digital world. So, and this is the great wager we're making in the 21st century. This itself is a mass, massive conversation. We, we and China, by the way, 
are making the same wager, and I keep fighting this. We're making okay. the wager that digital can be the substitute for analog. And I'm saying, no, it can only be a supplement to the analog. And we're making a terrible, terrible mistake. In the same way we're believing that driverless cars, Facebook friends, online shopping, fast food, I mean, all the examples that I give, fiat currency, all of those examples are what I call substitutism. And that is the great disease of our age, in addition to identity politics. It's a whole other conversation. And, oh, okay, I guess we, we should wrap up, but I could listen to you for hours. Um, is that, What's going to be the, the limiting principle on, on uh, digital life? Do you think that we can wake up before we're woken up uh, with regards to the I, tools that are kind of... Well, there too, in. it's, uh, you know, my question is, is the same question I ask of identity politics, which is, how's that working for you? And I think there's, you know, another example, by the way, is opioid addiction. That's the substitutism. And the problem, that's illuminating because the problem with digital substitutism is that you get this incredible high, right? Through through the the touch of my finger on a screen, I'm connected Mm -hmm. to the entire world. But, But you always have to look at the whole of life and what's connected to that. What's connected to that high is also incredible low of feeling completely disconnected from the world, just utterly disembodied. And human beings, to return to the very first thing we talked about with Tocqueville, human beings need to be embodied. They are embodied creatures, full stop. And we can extend that, uh, but we still always have to start from the embodied condition. And so coincident with the great high we have is the great low. And and the only way we're going to come out of that is if we begin to say to ourselves, isn't it interesting that these great highs and these great lows are going together? And do I really want to live that way? Maybe there's some other way to live which is much more stable and gratifying. And that's what we have to conclude. And it, until then, yes. Google and all the others will continue to give us the high, and we mm-hmm. won't walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People say yeah, I think very quickly. That, yeah. it's, I actually have to get going in a few minutes to another uh, interview radio show. But people say, well, you know, libertarians say, well, let's just have another browser. You know, let's not do Google. Let's just pick up another browser. You know, one that's more friendly to us. It's still the same problem. It's you're going to get high through another browser. Yeah. That's the problem. Okay. Professor Mitchell, thank you so much for granting this, this interview. I hope uh, at some point I can have you back on again as the world develops in whatever way it will. Um, but thank you for your time. My pleasure. And it was great to talk with you. Congratulations for making it to the end of the discussion. If you'd like to have more time with me and my guests, do check out my backlog. There's almost 200 conversations there. Also, if you'd like to support this channel, paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce is a good way to do it. Also, you can find me on Patreon. Do seek me out on odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E dot com. If you're tired of the YouTube censorship and if you're just listening to this podcast, you should know about now that I do have a YouTube channel at Benjamin A. Boyce. I will talk to you soon. Good night.